Worship is our reasonable, the normal response to a glimpse of the glory of the infinite being who is God. Worship is seeing and savoring the worthiness of God and responding as He deserves. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. Well, friend, do you consider yourself a member of a church? If so, consider the following. Are you committed to worship? Do you deliberately engage in individual worship from your heart, as well as worshiping alongside your fellow believers? Active participation in corporate worship is a defining hallmark of a biblical church member. But how does one learn to have a heart for corporate worship? Well, as you'll discover today, only the Holy Spirit can make you a true worshiper with God's people. Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. In verse 9, John gives us his, his circumstances in which he's writing this book. John was there because of his testimony for the Word and of Christ on the island called Patmos. And notice what he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. By the time of the last living apostle, the apostle John, this is undoubtedly written near the very end of the first century in the 90s AD, he calls Sunday the Lord's day. You know what that means? The day that belongs to the Lord. That's what it means. It's the day that belongs to the Lord. Unlike with the Sabbath, the New Testament doesn't prohibit us from doing other things on Sunday, the, the day prescribed for our worship, but that doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want and ignore the corporate worship because it is still first and foremost whose day? It's not your day. It's not the day for you to catch up on everything you want to do. It is first and foremost the Lord's day. It belongs to Him and your priority ought to be the corporate worship. So corporate worship, then, is a huge biblical priority. Even knowing that, sometimes Christians are tempted to try to replace corporate worship with things that aren't really biblical substitutes for corporate worship, things like involvement in a parachurch ministry. Listen, I'm all for those can benefit the church. I, for many years, worked at Grace to You, a parachurch ministry that tried to help church members grow in their involvement in the church. So there's nothing wrong with them, but don't think for a moment it is a replacement for corporate worship in the church. Others do it with a home Bible study. You know, that's my church. Or a Sunday school class, that's my church. Or a radio, television, or internet preacher becomes my church. A more recent substitute is streaming the services of a church. Now, don't misunderstand. Obviously, we stream our services. We think it's a really helpful tool. If you're sick or a family member's sick and you can't come or you're traveling and can't find a good church, or what a lot of people do is they'll use such 
such tools to supplement what they're getting in their own church. They're part of a church, they're involved, but maybe they're not fed there the way they really need. Their souls are still hungry, and so they supplement that. There's nothing wrong with that or other reasons to use such a resource, but understand this, streaming is not a substitute for the biblical requirement to meet with your church in corporate worship. You say, okay, I get it, but why? Why is corporate worship so important? It's because you and I are part, get that word, we are part of the family of God. Ephesians 2, we now belong to God's family. And to focus solely on my individual worship is to practically say this, I am the only one of God's children that really matters to Him. In fact, it's to fail to love others as I love myself, and therefore it is a failure to love God. Let me show you. Look at 1 John. I have a number of passages in my Bible or in my notes here that I could take you to, but I'll just do one. Look at 1 John 4, verse 19. John writes, We love because God first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now watch the end of verse 20. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So don't tell me you love God if you don't love his people. You don't love God. You love yourself. And verse 21 says, and this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Listen, You don't love God if you show up here and you say, look, I'm here for what I can get, like a restaurant. I chose to come when I chose to come, and and I'm ordering what I want to hear, and I get what I need, and then, boom, I'm out of here. I don't really care about these people. Listen, you don't love God because you can't love God without loving His people. It's impossible. So it's obviously very, very important. Now, let's look next at the elements of corporate worship. We've considered a definition of worship. We've considered its priority. What are the elements of corporate worship? We can only include in corporate worship the elements that Scripture actually prescribes. This this grows out of the principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, that the Bible is the ultimate authority for everything in our faith and in our practice. Now, the Reformers agreed on this basic principle, but from there they disagreed. The Lutherans and the Anglicans joined with the Roman Catholics in embracing what is called the normative principle. The normative principle. The normative principle teaches this, whatever Scripture does not explicitly forbid is acceptable in worship. In other words, the normative principle asks this, Does Scripture forbid this practice in worship? And if I can't find a chapter and verse that says it's wrong, don't do this, then it's okay to do it. The Reformed that grew out of the Reformation, the Reformed embraced the opposite position of the normative principle, and their position was called the regulative principle, the regulative principle. And the regulative principle says that only that which Scripture explicitly prescribes is acceptable in the worship of God. John Calvin put it this way, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. So if the Bible doesn't say, worship God like this, then it's wrong to do. 
This, by the way, was the prevailing opinion that grew out of the Bible scholars of the Reformation. In fact, the Westminster Confession, representing the Presbyterian line of thinking, and the, the Second Baptist Confession of 1689, representing the Baptist line of thinking, both said exactly the same thing. Listen to what they write. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men. And then here's the punchline. Or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. That's it. You see, the regulative principle asks, where does Scripture command us to do this in worship? And if you can't find a place in the New Testament where it says the church is to do this in worship, then don't do it. Only what Scripture prescribes is acceptable worship. Hughes Old writes, the basic acts of worship we perform because they are clearly commanded in Scripture. The ways and means of doing them we try to order according to scriptural principles. Now, why? Why are we so uptight about this? Because remember the second commandment. The second commandment warns us how unprescribed forms of worship soon become what? Idolatry. They become idolatry. Duncan writes, the further we get away from God's directions, the less we actually worship. It may look like worship, it may smell like worship, it may be emotionally compelling, but the farther we get away from the Scripture and what it prescribes, the less we actually worship. Therefore, here at Countryside, our worship includes only seven biblically mandated elements. This is what's in our worship. This is why we do what we do and why we only do this. Number one, we sing the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. We choose to sing to God music that is rooted in the truth of God's Word. Secondly, we pray the Scripture. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, when the church comes together, I want men to pray. There needs to be prayer in the church. Our prayers grow out of our response to Scripture, just as my pastoral prayer did a few minutes ago as we read John 4. Thirdly, there's the reading of the Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13, which Paul says to Timothy, when the church comes together, Timothy, I want you to give special attention to the reading of God's Word. That's why Scripture reading is a part of our service. There's the teaching of the Scripture. Also in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, I want you to read the Scripture, then I want you to teach what you read, and then I want you to exhort with it. I want you to apply it. So what do you do? You read the Scripture, you explain the Scripture, you apply the Scripture. That's what I'm up here to do. Read the Scripture, explain the Scripture, apply the Scripture, because that's what Paul said we're supposed to do when the church gathers. Second Timothy 4, of course, same point, preach the Word. Fifthly, another element of our worship is giving free will offerings. That's the New Testament model to see scriptural worship supported here in this church and extended through evangelism around the world. You see this in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Philippians 4. And then the last two elements of our worship that are prescribed see the truth acted out in two ceremonies. Number six, we practice the ordinance of baptism. Our Lord gave the church this command in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. 
Go, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them. That shows it's in the context of the church. And in Acts 2, you see this flesh out in the life of the early church. Acts 2.41, those who received Peter's word were baptized. Acts 18.8, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and therefore being baptized. Number seven, we practice the ordinance of the Lord's table. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, Paul lays that down as a directive on all the churches to follow. Now, that's why, folks, we only do what we do, because this is what the Scripture prescribes. These are the only proper, legitimate seven elements of worship. That's why you don't see me every Sunday up here in a, in a set of tights doing spirit dancing across this platform, <laughs> for which you can be eternally grateful, I might add. <laughs> but that's why we don't do it, because it's not prescribed in the New Testament for the church to do. These things are, and that's why we do them. The fact that we do these things because they are divine directives does add a solemnity to what we do here on Sunday. We are doing what God commanded us to do, but it also adds great joy because we know that in doing these things, God is pleased because this is exactly what He's commanded be done in the worship of Him. It honors Him. Lastly, I want to consider the practice of corporate worship, the practice of corporate worship. We've discovered that attending the corporate worship must be a weekly priority for every true believer. You say, Tom, I get it. I'm here. Well, that invites the next question, and that is, what exactly are you supposed to do once you get here? You see, it is not enough for your body to show up. That is not worship. The fact that you're filling a seat here this morning doesn't mean that you have worshiped God for one second. So, what does it require? Well, the practice of corporate worship requires two intentional commitments. For those who are truly God's, number one, you must deliberately engage in individual worship from your heart. When you come together with the church, when we come for corporate worship, it starts with you because if each of us individually aren't worshiping, then guess what? We're not worshiping corporately. It has to start in the heart of every person. In John chapter 4, verse 24, a little farther in the passage we read this morning in our Scripture reading, Jesus defined true worship. Listen to what He said to the Samaritan woman. John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. God is a spirit. He is a spiritual being. God doesn't have a body. And that means that we must worship God in our own spirit because He's spirit. Now, obviously, He adds worship in truth. That means worship according to His revelation of both who He is and how He's to be worshipped. But what is this worship in spirit? You see, to be true worship, worship must flow from your soul. It doesn't happen simply because your body is here. This is not a new requirement, by the way. God has always demanded this. You remember back in, in Deuteronomy, the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, as he begins to frame up God's law, what does Moses say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. 
God is not happy when your body shows up. He's only happy if your soul is engaged. He's pleased if your mind and heart are engaged in worshiping Him. In Deuteronomy 26, 16, Moses says, you shall be careful to do what God commands. Doesn't end there, though. Listen to this. You shall be careful to do what God commands with all your heart and with all your soul. It's only obedience when your heart and soul are engaged. By the way, this is how the faithful have always worshiped. Again, I have a list of references in my notes. Let me just give you one. Mary, Jesus' mother, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And verse 47, and my spirit, synonym for soul, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That's how we're to worship. It comes from inside. So to worship in spirit means that when we gather for worship, you do two things, if I could put it this way. Number one, you make a conscious decision to worship. And number two, you make an ongoing effort to continue to engage in worship. At every moment, you've got to be reminding yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're worshiping the God who created you, who provides all things for you, who is your Redeemer, your Savior, your friend. Your heart has to be engaged. And that has to be with all seven elements of worship. So, for example, when we sing together, you are to sing to God from your heart. That's more than just moving your lips. It means your heart is engaged. It means you are sincere and authentic. You really mean what you're singing to God. And you certainly aren't refusing to sing at all. You say, well, you know, and I understand this. There are people who say to me, you know, Tom, I, I don't sing because I can't sing. Well, neither can most pop musicians. <laughs> but look at how far it's gotten them. Listen, God doesn't care about the quality of your voice. He cares about your heart. And countless times, I need to count them up sometime, dozens of times the Bible commands believers to sing. So if you're not singing and you're a professed follower of Jesus Christ, you're just being disobedient. When we pray, we are to follow the one who's leading. This morning when I was praying in pastoral prayer, when Dusty was praying earlier to introduce the service, you're to pray with the one leading in your heart. You're to talk in your heart to God along with that person, either agreeing with what they say and expressing it to God or even rewording it and reshaping it in your own way. When we read the Scriptures, you're to remind yourself, this is God's Word to me. When you hear the Word being taught as you are right now, you are to listen as if Christ Himself was teaching God's Word to you. That's what God has gifted me to do. Now, you don't listen to me like you listen to Christ. You accept every word He says. In my case, like the Bereans, you need to make sure what I'm saying is true to Scripture. But once you manifest the fact that it's true to Scripture then you need to listen as if Christ himself were teaching, and you need to submit to that truth, and you need to determine to be a doer and not a hearer only. Being engaged in spirit means that you give regularly from how God has prospered you, and you give cheerfully to the Lord from your means for the support of the ministry here and the expansion of, of the ministry around the world. It means you obey Christ in getting baptized and you support others who become baptized with your presence and with your encouragement. 
It means when we take the Lord's table, you engage your mind in confessing your sin and in remembering Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. You see, participating in corporate worship means that you engage in individual worship from your heart. But that's not all. It also demands, number two, that you deliberately join in corporate worship with and for the benefit of others. You understand that? It's not just individual. Worship has both a vertical focus, God, and it has a horizontal focus, the people sitting around you. Although worship is to be primarily focused on God, it is not exclusively focused on God. Worship with other believers, corporate worship, is actually a chance for you to be aware of and to minister to the people around you. Let me illustrate this with a couple of elements of worship. When we pray corporately, when we gather and pray, we are to pray to God, of course. But isn't it interesting that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and following, as Jesus teaches us how we are to pray as His disciples, He doesn't say, me. He says, give what? Us. It is deliberately corporate in its focus. And when we pray corporately, that's how we're to pray. We're to pray with others, and we're to pray for others. Or take singing. Obviously, we are to sing to God, but we are to sing with others and even for others. Do you know that? Do you know your singing is for the people around you as well as God? You say, is that biblical? It is. Let me show you. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Ephesians five nineteen, Paul writes, I want you to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's the horizontal element of worship. You're speaking to one another. And here's the vertical, verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see, they're both there. Same thing is true over in Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The same double focus. Colossians 3, 16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Why are we speaking to one another? Well, here it is. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Listen, as we sang together this morning, you were teaching. You were teaching what you believe, what you believe the Christian faith teaches, what you believe is true about God, what you affirm. We sang, I believe. You're saying that to God, and you're saying it to all these people. This is my confidence. This is my hope. This is what I affirm, and you should too. And then he goes on in verse 16 to go to the vertical element, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Both are true. Your worship should be offered to God, but it should be intentionally offered with others and for others. So let me ask you, are you a biblical church member? Are you? You want to be in a biblical church, are you a biblical church member? Are you committed to the corporate worship? And when you come, do you deliberately engage in individual worship from your heart 
And do you deliberately join in corporate worship with and for the benefit of others? If so, you get the hallmark. You get the stamp of divine approval. That is part of what it means to be a biblical church member. If not, take the notes you took today, stick it in your Bible, and for the next two months on Saturday night or Sunday morning before you come, review it and ask the Holy Spirit to make you a true worshiper with God's people. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. Join us next time for part three. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.